You're listening to Stories Behind the Songs with Chris Blair. For more information, check out chrisblair.com. Hey everyone, here's another episode of Stories Behind the Songs. I'm your host, Chris Blair, and in this episode, we're going to sit down with Kelly Archer. Kelly's originally from Vancouver, British Columbia, and she's got songs that have been recorded by Jason Aldean, Dustin Lynch, Eli Young Band, Montgomery Gentry, Reba McIntyre, Trisha Yearwood, Cassidy Pope, uh, several Canadian artists, so many more. It was just such a great episode. You're going to hear the story of how she grew up and how she dipped her toe into songwriting at a very early age by rewriting another popular song, but how that made her begin to follow that path. She had a very eclectic taste in music, and that also helped her open her mind to a lot of different ways to write. Uh, Her dedication to do this in Nashville is so inspiring. You'll hear about the over 20,000 miles that she drove back and forth from Canada to work and save money to come back to Nashville and do this and chase this dream. That dedication has definitely paid off. And although she was just about to head back home for good, you'll hear the story of how she got talked into staying and shortly after that had her first number one with Brett Young's Sleep Without You. You'll hear the story about that song along with her song Somebody Else Will that she wrote for Justin Moore and For Her for Chris Lane. Uh, Hear the lessons that she learned along the way and some great advice that she shares. It was a pleasure having her on. This is Kelly Archer. Let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Here's another episode of Stories Behind the Songs, and I am here today with Kelly Archer. What's up? Hello. How are you? Good to have you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming in, and you're uh, you're about to take a little vacay. Yes. Pacific Northwest, here I come. I can't wait. Fresh air, ocean, mountains. I'm really excited. It's going to be nice. It's going to be very nice. Um, Well, speaking of, of that, Take me back to Canada. Like that's that's how you got into music. Um, what uh, like what was your progression when you uh, when you were growing up and like where did you figure out like hey I want to do this and um, when did that lead to Nashville? I mean it it can go back pretty far because of my dad. My dad owned a country bar when I was growing up. One of the very few in Vancouver. I was one of those kids whose favorite singer growing up was like. Kenny Rogers mm. and the Gambler album yeah. and my friends were like who but we always had like the most random like we had CCR in the house and my dad was in bands so like it was like CCR and um, Frank Sinatra and Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck mm. and then like a whole, just a whole bunch of random stuff and he owned this country bar till I was about 12. So we were just around music. My dad played music. He was in a band. And then after that, in like high school, I started doing musical theater. And I got, I got the gig as Daisy May and Little Abner. And I joined like a three-part harmony kind of Supremes-ish uh, girl group called the Chicklets. Shout out to my All right. old school yeah. Chicklets. And we got to do a lot of shows. We actually got to perform in like Disney World and and uh, Universal Studios and stuff. So, And then my brother started doing hip hop and I got really into uh, R&B music, uh, 90s R&B. And then somebody dropped a, me a, a tape a cassette tape of the dance by Garth Brooks. And I started listening to country again. And um, my first actual humble beginnings as a writer 
was that I was in uh, my church band, my local, in the school gymnasium, Sunday church, non-denominational church, and we were in the band, and we sang really cool songs, like we we would do Blackbird, and we would do all these mm. different songs, and and then we were doing a Father's Day service, and there were no happy Father's Day songs. So I said, well, there's this one Reba McIntyre song that's really sad, but I bet I could change the lyrics. So I rewrote the lyrics to every, The Greatest Man I Never Knew into The Greatest Man I Ever Knew. And I'm sure if I could remember how it went, it was very cheesy. It was like, he taught me how to ride a bike, but it was to the melody of that song. And after we performed it that weekend, somebody from the band said, did you rewrite those lyrics? And I said, yeah, and he's like, that was really good. And I was like, really? And that was the first bug of like, oh, writing lyrics. Hmm. And so I picked up a guitar. I maybe knew just two chords at the time, learned maybe a third along the way. And um, that's kind of like the very early beginnings of uh, becoming a writer or starting to want to become a writer. I didn't really know it was a job. Yeah. I didn't know this was a job that you'd sustain over a period of time. That, that is a big surprise to me. Yeah. So I kind of stumbled into it a little bit like that. Yeah, I think most people do. It's, you know, when I sit down, like even like people like the, you that have so much success, it's the same thing over and over. It's like, you know, when we're growing up listening to these cassette tapes, like, you know, that's what we grew up listening to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like, you just assume that's like the person singing it, that's where the song came right. from and it's, they wrote it on their bedroom yeah. floor, cross-legged, or sitting in their house, and that's just how it was. But I did start, you know, I, I was a big, like, Whitney Houston fan, and then I was a big, you know, um, oh, gosh, Bob Marley fan. Like, I, I had a really eclectic yeah. music. I, I was super into John Cougar Mellencamp yeah. for a while, and, and, and then, like, the Fugees and just just TLC like there was just a wide array of stuff I listened to so I really think that that's been really beneficial to me like growing up knowing really old school cool music and then living through the 80s and 90s of like rock and R&B and I just really loved it I loved it I was like the girl singing into the hairbrush in the bathroom <laughs> yeah with the one fake tear rolling down my face yeah. you know I just loved the whole drama of it and yeah. Yeah. So then you decide that you are going to come pursue this. Yes. Um, so talk me through that decision that uh, terrifying you had to make between <laughs> New York and Nashville. Yeah. So I got out of high school. I did really well in school, um, got a scholarship, and I just kind of was anti the, the grading system. I didn't believe in pigeonholing people. So, and to be quite frank, I just didn't. I don't think I had any academic aspirations enough to want to chase anything. So I, um, I got a job at a bank as a bank teller. And then I continued to do some theater while I decided, okay, is there a performing arts school? What should I do? And I lost my voice and I had to wait on a surgery for a couple of years. So I just really dug into the bank and they kept sending me to courses and I got my mutual funds license and I was managing a small branch of the HSBC bank when I was like 22 and I was bored <laughs> and then I had my surgeries 
and I started singing and playing again. And at that point, I was really, really into country music. And I had had that experience where I'd rewritten that one song, and I just was like messing around with writing. But very, I mean, I might have written one or two songs at this point. And I was like, I got to do something. So coming from Canada, it's very scary coming to the States because you can't work. So it's like, how am I going to do this? So I saved a lot of money. Like I worked, I always had two or three jobs as a teenager, but I really saved my money. Moved to Calgary for about six months thinking maybe I could take country music there because that was the sort of the, the mecca for country at the time back there. But very quickly I was like, if I want to do this, I got to go to Nashville. Yeah. So I sort of, I want to say I flipped a coin because that's not literal, but like I was really debating and it just seemed like Nashville was a safer choice at the time, an easier choice. It didn't seem as scary as going to New York City. And then I told my parents, I'm like, I'm moving back home and I'm going to save up money for one year and I'm leaving a year from today. Just gave myself that goal. And then January 7th, 2001 rolled along and my car was packed and I was like, well, I guess I'm going. <laughs> um, no plan. I had a AAA flip map. I had no cell phone at the time because that was new. And I yeah. was like, who's going to carry a phone around? Of course, that's in the, all in the past. <laughs> but I didn't have a phone at the time. I had a AAA flip map. I had some money that, you know, you lose half in exchange back then of, on Canadian money into U.S. dollars. And I drove from the west coast of Canada to California, hung a left on 40. And so it took about five days because it was winter time. Um, but it was a 52 hour drive for me to come here. And mm. I rented a little room in a house in Bellevue from a older couple that were originally from Canada. I'd met through my aunt. And I just started wandering around. I really didn't know a soul. I went to everything NSAI put on, anything ASCAP, BMI put on that was free. I showed up at every workshop with yeah. my tape and I just started wandering around. And then the lady I was renting from brought a bunch of sweet treats after Christmas to a few companies. And she was like, do you want to ride along with me? I said, sure. There was a company at Cummins Station that did digital pitching. And it was like a brand new thing because the internet was sort of just like this the whole digital thing was just starting to happen. So I walked in carrying a pie and it, that office had a bunch of young people in it. So about a week later, it was a beautiful day out and I was so lonely and bored and missing my friends and no one to talk to. And so I just drove over to that place again and I walked in and I said, hi, and they're like, can we help you? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm new to town and I don't really have any friends. And does anybody know anything I can do? Or, and they were like, and this girl, Amber Dodson, I don't know if you remember Amber yeah, Dodson. Yeah. She was working there and she goes, my boyfriend's band's playing at Douglas Corner. You can c come see that. I'll be, like, I'll be there. Wow. And so. And they remembered me. They called me Apple Pie Kelly. Oh, you brought the apple pie. I was like, yeah, Apple Pie Kelly. Yeah, that's my name, you know. So I showed up at Douglas Corner, and Amber was talking to a guy named Chris Burgess. Yeah. Who became a friend, and um, he goes, I love Canadians. I just had a song cut by Emerson Drive. 
He's like, meet me on the music row and I'll walk you around the next day. So he did. And um, from there, I just started meeting people. Um, so that was kind of like my very humble beginnings. And then I couldn't work here. So my money would run out after about eight weeks. And so I would drive 3,000 miles home to my three jobs, save up money for about 10 or 12 weeks, turn around and drive back. So I did seven one-way drives in my first 18 months before I got my first publishing deal. Wow. Like 21,000 miles before I, just to work at Red Robin. Yeah. And a warehouse. So it was definitely the long route, but I'll say it built some character. Yeah. And I also recorded a lot of ideas on those drives. I listened to a lot of music on those drives, you know? Wow, that's incredible. And that sounds just like Chris too. He's just such a such a great awesome soul. dude yeah my first number one party i reached out to every one of my first publishers and chris and i said please come and i worked <clears throat> i worked sorry <clears throat> i worked my way backwards from how i got to this point when i was thanking people and it went all the way back to chris burgeness mm. and he was the last person because see i feel like he got he was the first person to take me around and and walk me around. So, and my first publisher was Cole Wright. And, you know, like I just kind of went backwards on like, it's not, it's not a straight line to get here. And here I am, here I was 15 years later. And I thanked people all the way down the line to the very beginning because yeah. it was such a, a weird, it's such a weird career to, you need those little baby steps to get started. You know, it's the people you meet kind of one to the next kind of thing. So that's such a beautiful story. I, you know, I, I've I've been to so many number one parties and, uh, I don't know, you know, I've heard, I've heard a lot of people thanked, but just, just the fact that you did that and to go all the way back to the beginning. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't do that. You know, they're looking at the here and now and like, and very, and, and I'm sure like very grateful of the path that they took, sure, right? Yeah. But, but to mention it, that's that says a lot about you. That's really. I cool. think it's important, um, you know. And you, you know, you meet people along the way, and then you don't necessarily end up in the same path. Your path changes. You end up finding your people. You do all this stuff, and you know. So I hadn't seen Chris in a few years, but I was like a hundred percent sure I wanted to call him and personally be please be there yeah you know please come and um you know you're part of the journey here so i'm sure that meant so much to him too yeah he showed up it was really it was really nice to see him so um so you're in town uh you're meeting people uh apple pie kelly is going out to shows and meeting meeting friends way too friendly and (laughs) unaware of what's to come yeah uh so uh then what happens like you get when you when you got your first cut uh that was really you know really starting to go okay wow like this is i can do this my first cut was a big lesson in the crash and burn so you hear you know if this is a 10-year town i'm like okay i'm not i don't have anything else to do i'll be here right yep and i got my first publishing deal and i was at at a company called island bound and at the time island bound was a, lo- a strong independent company independent publishers before there were a lot of independent publishers like they were one of a small group and but there were incredible writers there Stephen Dale Jones was there 
uh, Jim McBride was there. Mm. Phil Billy was there. Jamie Pollan was one of the young writers there. Um, and Max T. Barnes was there. And Max wrote a ton of my favorite, like, um, Diamond Rio songs. I was mm -hmm. super into the harmonies of Diamond Rio. And I was like, I couldn't believe I was getting to write with these guys. Like, One More Day was out, and I was writing with Stephen Dale Jones. And I was like, what? And then I got in to write with Max, and it was just a two-way. And we wrote this really fun little ditty called um, It's Friday. And it was very much in the lines of Diamond Rio at the time. And I was like, oh, I want Diamond Rio cut so bad. Well, the song ends up getting cut by Trace Atkins. And he's on, I think he was on Lyric Street Disney at the time. And I'm so new. This is year one, 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 one and a half. And I get this big cut, and it's going to be the single. And I'm like, 10-year town, 10-year <laughs> schmow, look at me. Like, I was so excited. They released the song. Rolling Stones does an article on the single, and it gets a rave review. And I'm like, holy smokes, I'm in Rolling Stone magazine freaking out like six weeks into the song he ass off the label and it was like a crash it was such a crash when you're that oblivious to how this works oblivious to the the pitfalls that, that yeah. this could happen i mean back then it was traumatic to lose a hold you know like what you know but that was my first hard lesson but i mean i it was also a taste of like what could happen mm -hmm. too so um, I was at that publisher for two years, and it wasn't, I had a whole bunch of stuff along the way. Lots of album cuts. I had a few songs on that first Dustin Lynch record, almost got a single there. I had a pretty big song on Jason Aldean's uh, second record, the Wide Open record. That was my, for a long time, was my only really big, like, that album went platinum. Yeah. We almost had a single five times. It was like... It was like, well, it's either going to be you or this song called Big Green Tractor. I was like, Big Green Tractor. <laughs> um, it's like, I was sure, I was so sure about this song, yeah. you know. And then Big Green Tractor. And then it was like, it's between you or the truth. And then it's like, it's between this or... And so we, we went all the way along and didn't get that single. And that was really disappointing, but it still was my first platinum. So by the time I actually had a, a hit hit, it was, I mean, just... A slight backtrack is I was leaving my fourth publishing deal 15 years in. I was out of debt. I had had a good run. And I was kind of like, ah, getting older. Folks are getting older. My cousins are having kids. Do I want to be doing this forever if I'm not really getting? It was a real heart of the bro country movement. I'm not anti-bro country, by the way. I'm just saying at that time it was hard to write for that because it got real campy for a while. Mm -hmm. and, and I wasn't in those camps. So I was like, ah, is it worth being this far away from family or did I have my run and was this fun and I need to find something else to do? And Jeremy Stover took me to breakfast and was like, I'm opening a publishing company. I think you need to stay. I just think you need a different opportunity. So I did. And then, so it was 15, 16 years before I actually had my first big hit come out. Yeah. And it was a surprise because it was a brand new artist. So it was not what I thought was going to happen. I didn't write a song for Keith Urban and then have my hit I've been waiting for. It was a brand new artist. And if I look back at the songs I've actually had hit, three of the four 
of my number ones have been the first for the artist. And I was like, oh, maybe that's my thing. Yeah. Maybe it's that's my thing. Maybe, you know, so I write with a lot of new artists because of that. Yeah. That's been sort of a where my luck fell. Yeah. You know. So. And we, we were talking earlier about, you know, back in the day we're used to play listening room, you know, sure. multiple times a week sometimes, you know, just I all the time. And, um, but that camp that you're hanging out with, that's that's the same thing, you know, like with Brian Davis and Lee, you mm -hmm. know, like two dudes that were just very close and like, you know, yeah. and they're still hanging out and writing songs together. Oh, yeah. So I think we that's, were all friends like that. That group, the Randy, how I mean, I wasn't super close because I didn't maybe party as hard as those <laughs> guys, but I was around all of that, like Brian Davis and Jared Neiman and Randy Hauser. We did a bunch of writers camps John together. Yeah, yeah, John Stone, all those guys. Like I was super friendly with all those guys, but we played a lot of shows. And Justin Weaver is somebody that I, you know, we've written together for 20 years. Uh, together before we had our first number one together but we wrote that Aldine song together and um there was just a lot of people that you know you you were friends with for 20 years and then everyone kind of went off and did their own thing a little bit but there's yeah I used to sit and play all the time I'd be in between Brian Davis and Lee Bryce and I remember I always had to pause because Lee would sing some big like you know such a great singer mm. and then he'd sing like some sexy love ballad and I'd be like I need a minute before I can sing <laughs> I got my real hot and bothered you know and but yeah they, it was just really fun times playing I mean I used to be thrilled playing four or five times a week yeah now I'm more too tired to do that but yeah I had a blast yeah. it was so much fun and back then we never made a dime off any of those shows like because you just did it to socialize yeah. and to network meet and people stuff. yeah yeah, and Nashville has become such a tourist hub that now it makes sense that, you know, people make a little bit of money when they play these shows. But um, but back then, we just did it for an education. It was sort of college, yeah. you know, to do all of that. So yeah. I loved those days. They were a lot of fun. It. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you're at the number one, and you're going back, and you're, you're thanking everybody backwards. Yes. Take me further back. Take me into the idea in the writer's uh, writer's room for that first for that number song? one. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, so my really good friend, Ronna Reeves, she um, runs a independent plugging company called Showbiz Row. And she kept telling me about Brett Young. And she was working with the people he was working with and kind of saying he was still in California, I believe, and coming back and forth. And she's like, I really he's in talks to do a record deal. And, you know, you hear that a lot. Oh, they're talking to somebody. You're like, OK, all right. I'll believe it when I see it kind yep. of thing. And I just started writing with Justin Ebach. And I had this date set up and I invited uh, Justin to to jump on the right. I loved what he did. And. Um, in walks Brett and sits down and he immediately starts talking about his dad and he's like hey um, so I just got off the phone with my dad and my mom's out of town and he said he's having a real hard time sleeping without her there because he's so used to her being there and I was in a long-term relationship so could we do like a younger version of that and I remember sitting there in that room and I 
immediately was like, you know, I grew up on John Hughes movies and Sex and the City. Like, I always want there to be a serendipitous, like, romantic thing. But I got into the, I got into the mindset of writing for boys for a period of time where we wrote a lot about tight jeans and meeting a girl in a bar and drinking and buying her a drink and this and that. So I remember going like, uh, yeah, uh, you mean a mature relationship? Yeah, <laughs> I super want to write about yeah. that. So we started writing and it really fell out. Like we wrote the song pretty quickly. Um, I feel like all three of us just like, we're like, yeah, this and this and this and this. And we wrote it fairly quickly within a couple of hours. And then we walked from Word where we were writing over to where Justin had a studio over at Warner, recorded it. And Justin's super fast with turnaround yeah. demos. And um, they sent it to me by like dinner time, five, six o'clock. And I was like typing, I go, guys, I may have just danced around my house, or danced around my kitchen for the last 30 minutes to this song, but I love it. I just had a feeling that it was like a good, I mean, I, I don't want to like downgrade it by saying it, it's a nice love ditty, but I'm someone who really appreciates a good feel good song. Mm -hmm. I wanted to come to town and be the female Craig Wiseman. I wanted to write the happy fun, summertime songs so I really appreciate that so I was like man this just feels good and then Brett went on to write or to sign his deal very quickly and they picked that as the first single so like that was such a surprise and and then you got a new artist and it's like is it gonna work and people just really loved the song yeah. so um you know it took the long route songs take on radio now I want to say we were at maybe 48 weeks when that song hit but that was the first number one. And I mean, I'll be honest with you, you get, I think every songwriter has a little bit of doubt and are self-conscious about what other people think of them. And when you're in it 15 years in, I was a little unsure of, you know, probably cared way too much about what people thought about me and was like, oh, people, I don't know if anyone even likes me, you know, like having those little doubts you have as a songwriter and when that song went number one, the amount of authentic love bombing I got from like texts of congratulations and people calling and people texting and people commenting on social media, like I felt this wave of like, not just you've worked really hard for this, like, but then there were a lot of people who were like, man, you really stuck it out, which makes me feel like I can stick it out. Mm. Like, wow. Yeah. And I was like, the whole way, it was really, it was way more emotional. I was way less concerned about, you know, the, the plaque or the number one party or the money that was gonna come and follow that. It really felt like, oh, like this is what I've been, this is what it feels like. This is what we're all chasing a little bit. So yeah. it was really overwhelmingly emotional. And then I really, really lucked out. I know some people get mad when you say you lucked out because yeah, I did work, but I really don't think it happens without the mixture of both. I yeah. really believe that. I'm not, there are great writers that have not had a number one. I'm, I was, I feel like I was a, good writer before I had a number sure, one. Yeah. It didn't make me a better writer. I just had some stuff pan out. So, um, so yeah, I just was really lucky at that time because 
that song hit and then I had two more songs coming out or on starting on the charts and then those two songs paralleled so I was I was just a few spots on that uh, third song away from having a triple play after having no big singles for 15 years so all of a sudden there was this people remembered who you were people were coming and calling you and that whole energy shift changed it really changed mm. my career that first song hitting and then what followed that yeah so I was really lucky and Brett just killed it I mean he uh, he, he and I um were very close uh you know and and it still are I mean he's you know he he he's still a consider him a great friend but you know the I, I remember being in the gulch we had there was about 10 people or so in the gulch celebrating his birthday and mm -hmm. and he was talking about like man I might just go back home yeah you know like you hear that story a lot you know his girlfriend now wife was you know you know he was trying to do this long distance thing and it was yeah. you know it's like it's just the struggle and the battle of like letting someone else kind of you're doing everything that you can but because of the the business side of of this it's you know you you kind of have to have every check mark you know yeah. and everybody say okay we're gonna push your song and and so grateful that that he did stick it out because I mean it's just I remember um he's got a really special voice it, yeah that's that's what I was gonna say I remember like when you know when I would watch people when he would play rounds, you know, and it's like, and I would hear people listen to, to other people who are, who are also great performers. Right. But they would sound just like this artist or whatever. And I would hear people go, Oh my gosh, they're so good. And I would think they are, but there's already that. Right. And, and it was the, it was the different unique voices like Brett's that I would just like stop in my tracks and go, whoa, like. And there and was a maturity to him. You know, he wasn't like 21 and drinking in bars, right. you know. The one thing I really appreciate about Brett that doesn't even have to do with my songs is that for me, he brought back space in songs. Like the he gave permission in mm -hmm. his own songs for there to be space between lines and I know my songs wordy um in the chorus it's not as wordy in the verses um but then like the song after me which was such a huge hit but in case you didn't know there's so much space that I don't know if at the time writers were allowing themselves the conversational speak with space in it mm -hmm. which took me back to like a time when I listened like it took me back to boys to men it took me back to Brian Adams it took me back to like where there was just space in songs and I really think he was the first one to start doing that again and even as a listener it and it felt like it gave me permission as a writer to start doing that too. And I yeah. really think he brought that back, which is kind of a funny little story is that the amount of things that have come from sleep without you was, is just so beyond the number one song. But, um, he ended up doing a crossroads with boys. To yeah, Men. I was there. Yeah. Boys to men was like, the Mecca for me in high school, like yeah. end of the road was my graduation song. And I was obsessed, 
right? So I find out, I get a sync request that they're going to do my song. They didn't end up doing my song. They canceled it last minute, which I didn't even care. I mean, I did care, but I didn't care, as in it didn't wreck my time. So I arrange for tickets to CMT, like, with a bunch of my girlfriends. We go get some Chewies. We head over. We're right in the front row, you know, and I'm like, I cannot believe I'm finally seeing a Boys to Men concert after all this time. <laughs> I had never seen them live. And I was like, I knew I loved Brett because he also loves Boys to Men. Like, I was so excited. And so I'm standing in the front. And they're doing this show, and they're like, right before, they're like, hey, we cut the song. I was like, I don't care. So I'm sitting there, and I'm just in full geek out, super fan mode. All of my friends had put their purses down, and then there was this gap between us and the stage where the cameraman mm-hmm. could go around. And they start singing End of the Road. And I'm full on into it. And I'm waving my hand in the air and I'm singing at the top of my lungs. And I'm turning around and I'm singing full gusto to my friends. And one of the guys from Boys to Men walks over and hears me singing so loud that he waves me over. But I don't see him because my eyes are closed because I'm singing so hard. And one of my friends just shoves me full palm in the back. And I trip over our bags into the stage and he shoves the mic in front of me. And now I'm singing into the road. I remember this, men. yes. And Brett hasn't seen that it's me yet. <laughs> and I'm just singing full, full voice in my absolute pleasure to be there. And I remember John, uh, um, John Knight's wife uh, also like sent me a video from like way above. But anyways, all that to say, and then the song was over and Brett looks over and he goes, hey, she wrote my first song with me like this. I was like, oh my gosh, kind of embarrassing, but kind of just awesome. Yeah. So like, I was like, if this is the only reason I came to Nashville <laughs> and everything added up to this moment where I sang End of the Row with Boys to Men, I'm like, I'll take it. Like if this was it, this was the moment I was waiting for. So, so, so many things came from that song. But, I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Brit Skin Beauty. Located in the beautiful Indulgence Medi Spa in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, Brittany is the go-to esthetician for facials, dermaplaning, microdermabrasion, waxing, lashes, and any skincare products and consultations. So many people in the music industry use her frequently, and her work speaks for itself. To schedule your next consultation or make an appointment, visit BritSkinBeauty.com or send an email to BritSkinBeauty at gmail.com. So then what was, uh, you've got, you've got three songs out at the same time yeah. coming up. So, um, walk me, uh, you know, walk me through, um, the next hit and kind of like, yeah. you know, things started happening pretty fast for you. Yeah. There was like this period of time where all of a sudden a bunch of songs hit. So that song hit. And then I wrote a song with Adam Hambrick and my good buddy Tebe Otto, um, just an outside song, me and. Adam took it into the studio, recorded it. Adam sang a version of it. And Adam's such an incredible singer, too. He had a bunch of runs in it and the melody and the chorus. And we find out that it's on hold for somebody over at Big Machine. And, and we're like, oh, so Rascal Flats is what we're thinking. And then we find out that it's Justin Moore. And I had sent that song to Dustin Lynch already. And Dustin was really kind. He... You know, we called him and we're like, J- Justin Moore wants to cut this song. 
do you want the song? And he's like, I mean, he goes, I love the song. He's like, but we're looking at something else right now for vibe wise. He's like, and I don't want them to lose the cut. So he let it go, which doesn't always happen. So I really appreciated that from him. And, you know, I got to give kudos to, uh, to Jeremy Stover because, you know, he's producing Justin Moore and I can tell you, I wasn't thinking Justin Moore on that song. Jeremy heard Justin Moore on that song. And when Justin got a hold of it, he didn't do the runs. He made it Justin Moore. Yeah. And it sounded awesome. And that song did really, really well for us. And that ended up being our second number one song. And then the third one I had out at that time was a Chris Lane song. And I wrote it with um, Matt Dragstrom and Sarah Buxton. And Sarah's the one, she's like, I really believe in this kid. And um, let's let's write specifically for him. I was like, let's write a big love ballad. And we wrote it that day. Sarah sang the fire out of it. And we walked it down to Joey downstairs. And he's like, yeah, I love it. I'll cut it. And that was <laughs> like, that never happened. Yeah, we no. aimed, we shot, and we bullseyed, uh, you know, with it and that song spent a year on the charts a full year and went number one in canada and then we dipped our toe into the top 10 so had that one hit it would have been a triple play for me that year which would have been incredible but obviously i'm not complaining yeah you know i'll take a, a million top tens please like yeah. you know what i mean if, yeah. if i never have a number one again but you just keep hitting me with top tens i'll take it yeah you know but Chris did such a good job of that song. It was a song called For Her. And uh, so all those kind of hit in a row, which changed everything as far as, didn't change necessarily the way I wrote. I have to say real quick to go back is when I had decided that I was maybe going to call it and Jeremy Stover was like, stay, I want to sign you to my publishing company I'm opening. I said, okay, but I'll give you 18 months. Cause that'll really? be, that'll give me time to like get my affairs in order and sell my house and whatnot. And I said, I'm doing whatever I want. I'm just going to go back to what I like because I felt like I was really chasing after some stuff. I felt like I was chasing what was happening and that is exhausting. So to any songwriter out there listening, it's like, you've got to create the next thing. You can't chase after, and there's no promising, even if you got with those people, they're not even doing that. They already did it. Most of those songs they wrote two years ago. So yep. you have to find, you have to figure out that if you like it and you're, and you're a fan of the music, it's like someone else is also gonna like it. So you kinda gotta do it your way. And so that's what I kinda did. And that started working for me. It was the first time I kinda let my tight grip of trying to make it and just started doing what I liked. And that's when things actually started to hit for me. Yeah. 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 I think that's so true. I mean, it's, we're starting to see a lot of that come around now with what's mm -hmm. current today yeah. is like, it's going, it takes me back to, you know, the, the music when I first started getting into country music, which was probably not until like the late eighties, early nineties. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I grew up, you know, in the, late 70s and 80s with you know rock and you mm -hmm. know billy joel and you know yep. john cougar and skid yeah. row and metallica and you know stuff like that um but yeah if i go back like listening to what's out there now it's like um it's 
it's kind of taking me back to those Diamond Rio days. And like, oh, yeah. you know, it's uh, coming full circle. Uh, and I was sitting down with, with a, another writer here in town just uh, a week or two ago. And, and he was talking about that, like that he's always just written true to what he is and had some great massive hits back in the day and hasn't had anything for years and years and years. And now all of a sudden he's, he's been writing the same thing, but now all of a sudden that's yeah. current. So I think that's such great advice is like. The sooner you can get to that mindset, I think the more productive you'll be that you yeah. can trust that it is. Cause I mean, and the more you're around, it's one of those catch 22s. The more you're around, the more you realize, but you if you could get there sooner you'd be better off so it's like but some of that's experience right it's sort of doing the wrong thing for a little while can also teach you to do the right thing too so everyone's got a different journey through this but like right now there's a there's a bunch of like new people that gravitated towards each other and came up with something and I think a lot of people's instinct is how do I get into that and it's like, you don't. Go make your own. Go do your own thing. Go do yeah. your own thing. That I can't stress that enough to the young writers is to go find your people. Because when I was about to leave at 15 years in, Jody Williams, who at the time was running BMI, mm -hmm. took me to breakfast. And he said, I see you. A lot of your people you grew up with hit before you the Luke Lairds and the Natalie Hembees and stuff, they had already kind of strived. And he's like, I can see you trying to catch up with them. He's like, but if you stop and look around to your left and right, which was Adam Hambrick, Emily Shackleton, like all these people, he's like, you guys are next. And I was like, oh. And it made sense mm. that I would want to be with the people that I kind of grew up with. It makes sense that those are your instincts. And it does take somebody saying to you, just stop like for a second. And then when I started hitting, you know, it was sort of like, oh, it was more like the people that were to my left and right, not the people that were ahead of me that were, I was, you know, hitching on to or pull, they were pulling me up. It was like literally the people that I was side by side with. It's just I was a little bit more of a late bloomer. So I found my people a little bit later as far as like really connecting to right and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm, I love yeah. that. You want to play something? Uh, yeah, I can Just play maybe a, a little bit. Well, I mean, chorus of, uh, you pick. Just, uh. I mean, I can, uh, I'll just play some, I guess, the newer, the newest. Yeah. It's just, what key can I do in this, in the, this early in the <laughs> early morning? Early in the morning, yeah. So, after those few hits, I had another hit during the pandemic with, um, speaking of growing up in the late 80s and early 90s, I also was like a big I wasn't super heavy metal rock, but I loved like more that Americana rock, like more the John Mellencamp, mm -hmm. Brian Adams, like all that stuff. And um, when we wrote After a Few with Travis Denning and Justin Weaver, that was sort of in that sweet spot for me. I wasn't aiming for country radio necessarily, and I really did, was was not sure that was going to be a single. People really loved it. Like people, the response I got from that from other writers and and from when I'd play it out, I feel like that was just something that wasn't happening at the time. Like it was in its own lane. And I think that's one of the reasons that song worked so well. Um, so that hit in June of 2020 after 
it, I think right now it still holds the record for the longest time to enter the charts to take all the way up to top to the number one spot, which I think we're at. I think it was 67 weeks or something <laughs> like that. That song was only supposed to dip into the top 10, kind of like my Chris Lane song, and I was totally fine with it. And then the pandemic hit and it saved the song because they yeah. were like, well, we're not putting out something new now with this going on. So they kept on it. So, you know, again, that was supposed to be a top 10 and it ended up being a number one. So I had no control over that. And, uh, and then this lately, there's been a resurgence of cutting outside songs. And this song was, I wrote back in 2017 with Brett Tyler and a young Morgan Wallen mm. before he had whiskey glasses. And, uh, when we did the, um, we did another story behind the song, and I was like, it was 2017. I don't really remember. And Brett, I called Brett Tyler, and I go, what did you say? Because this is, I remember this. I remember this. He's like, oh yeah. He's like, you brought the idea, and I, I was like, I did. So I went back through my book, and I found the idea, and I go, oh yeah. This came from an episode of Sex in the City, and here's what's hilarious about it. So you can hear like, you can hear Morgan. Morgan's tone in this song we wrote this story song which is my favorite stuff to write anyway but yeah it originated from an episode of Sex in the City um, where Carrie Bradshaw says I need to find someone to run wild as me and I wrote that down and I was like so I said what about this girl who's like needs someone to run wild with her and blah 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 so we wrote this song and at the end of the chorus so we started with the story right yep. and and um Morgan being from East Tennessee, it was Tennessee, and then when Corey got a hold of it, he changed it to Tulsa because he's from Oklahoma, right? But it, uh, I'll play you a little bit, the verse chorus, and I'll tell you about the ending of this chorus in a second. Okay. It was like, she never wanted to be why picket fenced in her horse like a feather in a Tennessee wind. See, so breeze will bring her to life, and all them other boys say she's a goodbye girl, wreck your world. Leave before the morning sun, but here she is, free laying next to me, cause I ain't trying to tame her love. I keep the windows down and the wind in her hair Keep her heart hanging on round every turn She ain't scared of being tied down, scared to get burned Just looking for somebody as wild as her Wild, wild as her Wild So, that song when we got to the end of that chorus, and Brett Tyler actually reminded me of this too, because I didn't remember this, because I said, you came up with that long wow thing at the end. And he goes, yeah, but only because you said, we need something at the end of this, like, you know how at the end of Great Day to Be Alive, they go, uh, ooh, yeah. ooh, like this. I said, we need something like that at the end. And then Brett said, you mean this? And he said he kind of jokingly threw that out. And then Morgan sang it, and we were like, uh, yeah, that, because he sounded so good. And I took that song into the studio, cut it on a regular demo session, and then I had Morgan come in, sing the vocal over at my buddy uh, Dan uh, Danik Dupel's studio over in Berry Hill. 
cut a vocal on him. I sang BGVs on it. And I felt so strongly about this song. I walked, I was like, here you go, silver platter <laughs> to the label. And at the time they were like, we are really hyper-focused on party songs right now. Like we need, they were looking for whiskey glasses, which, you know, was such a big breakthrough for Morgan. And I was like, but, but, you know, and then the song went on to get cut once and then, but it didn't do super well. So then I had a buddy up in Canada named Tyler Joe Miller, who I'd had a bunch of success with. And I said, here's a song I feel didn't get its day. It's been cut once, but do what, do with it what you will. And Danik cut it on him. And he puts it out. And about six weeks into that release, six, eight weeks into that release, I start getting tagged on Instagram. And I'm like, who's Corey Kent? Wait a minute, Tyler has this song out in Canada. What's this? You know, so it kind of crossed over. Everything worked out perfect for everybody. But Tyler did a great job of this song and he took a top 10 up in Canada. And then Corey, clearly, like that thing, talk about the, the blowing up on TikTok or whatever. I mean, that was my first experience with that. And then Sony jumped on it and took it all the way. And I mean, and it also introduced me to Corey Kent as an artist. Yeah. He did such a good job. He made it super his own. Uh, Chris Farron cut a great track on it. Um, it just it's, was a very happy surprise, you know? But that was also one for the outside song, right? Because I know Morgan's on it, but it is technically an outside cut that circled back after many, many years. And you don't get that opportunity very often. And then I have a new song coming out um, on this Cody Johnson project, which is a song from 2015. Mm. Um, it's got Cody Johnson and Carrie Underwood on it. So it's, I'm, I'm, and that's an outside cut too. When is that coming out? Well, he's just finishing his project now. They okay. made the announcement about the song um, being, him having a duet coming out with Carrie Underwood. Yeah. So. And let me tell you something, I've been trying to get a kind of Carrie Underwood cut for a decade. So when I found out she sang on it, I've lost it. I was so excited. And it's a ballad. So those don't happen that often. So I'm really excited oh, about that one. That's awesome. Yeah. But it does give you, you know, what I was saying to my co-writer yesterday, I said, because he's Travis Dennings, I also wrote that song with Travis Denning and Chris Stevens. Um, and I said, you know, when I first moved to town, you'd hear songs like Bless the Broken Road. And you'd go, you know, that was a 10 year old song. Mm -hmm. If the song comes out in the next couple years uh, on this project uh, and, you know, does what you hope it does, knock on wood, it'll be one of those songs people say, you know, that was a 10 year old song. And I'm like, am I old enough to have a song that was 10 years old? I'm like, yeah, I guess I am. <laughs> I guess I am, you know? So it gives a little bit of validation to like, just trusting the process and putting writing something for yourself and then or writing something you like and then you never know what could happen with the songs yeah because i can tell you that day we were not writing for anybody but ourselves that day um we had both travis and i had both gone to see the dixie chicks in different cities we were just talking about album cuts on their records and how you knew every song on those records and the writers and how just that singer songwriter side of writing mm. that when we learned how to write 
And uh, we were like, I was like, we didn't have any ideas. I go, let's just write a love, simple love song and let's call it a day. And here we are 10 years later and Cody Johnson and Carrie Underwood are cutting it. So yeah, again, this is where luck comes in. Yeah. Okay, I'll take it. I had hands off that song for so long now, other than playing it out all the time. So yeah. I love it. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks this for having me. This has been so me. fun. I feel yeah. like we could, I mean, we, we'll, we'll have to do this again because there's so much more yeah. that we can dive into. Um, sure. But before we wrap up, I always end with the same question. So if you can go back yep. to eight-year-old Kelly oh boy. in Canada, <laughs> now that you've kind of gone through this path and you've learned what you've learned, what advice do you give yourself? Oh, boy. I mean, I think it all comes down to, for me, uh, trusting and putting some validation to your own likes and skills and what you bring to the table. I mean, I think, I think for a lot of us, there's just so much doubt that creeps in as you get, as you go through life between failures and rejections and crowds and you know I'm a bit I'm one of those people who's if I know you I'm super chatty and comical but I'm also a bit of an introvert so I think I never wanted to bother anybody so I, I made me just kind of second guess yourself a little less um, mm. just trust what it is that you bring to the table and trust what it is there's no reason why I, I shouldn't trust what I think is a good song because I am the listener. I am the person who still cranks the radio and still listens to people and enjoys the music. I was someone who enjoyed music, so I should trust if I like it, because I was that listener. And I think I lost that a little bit. I started to kind of like worry too much about what peop other people's opinions were of songs that I liked, mm. which affected my writing. So I definitely think it's just trust your Trust your journey. Trust what you what you bring to the table. That's what I would go back and tell her. I love it. So good. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Well, thanks again. Thank it's you. Been, been a blast. Yeah. Fun talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody out there listening and watching. Uh, we really appreciate it. Make sure you hit that like, subscribe, and follow button wherever you are listening and share this with your friends. Uh, we appreciate it so much. This has been another episode of Stories Behind the Songs. I'm Chris Blair, and you've been listening to Kelly Archer. We'll see you next time. This has been an episode of Stories Behind the Songs with Chris Blair. For more information after the show, head over to chrisblair.com. That's where you can find information on these episodes, trailer notes, video links, all kinds of great stuff. Also, make sure to leave us a great rating on iTunes, like and follow us on Spotify, YouTube, wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a comment, let us know what you think. I really hope that you think this show is awesome and we really appreciate the love and support. I promise to keep gathering great content and continuing to sit down with more amazing songwriters and artists as we grow. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for the support. We'll see you next time.